Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. Good morning, Imago Day. Can we show some love to our online community who are joining us today? We want to welcome you. We are glad that you're with us today. We are in our first week of Advent, and so if you are new to Imago, um, we celebrate Advent uh, a little differently. And I want to go back this year to kind of the beginning of why we do Advent the way we do. So in 2007, that's a long time ago, I'm realizing, um, we started with a, kind of a problem, and, and there's, a, there's a slide I want you to see. <clears throat> we started with a problem, and we asked the question, um, how do you celebrate Advent, the birth of Christ, in a consumer culture? Next slide. Right? How do you do that? Because here we were realizing, like, this is the most like one of the, the high points of all of Scripture, of all of the story of God, God coming to, to, be, to take on our humanity. And yet we found ourselves, uh, you know, rushing around, overspending. It's hectic, it's chaotic. People are uh, frazzled, and, and it's drowning, in a real sense, the story of Jesus out. And so there were a few pastors, and we began to imagine how, how would we enter our story? How would we tell our story differently? <clears throat> Eugene, Peter says, Eugene Peterson says it's not enough simply to read the Scriptures, but that the point is, is to get the Scriptures lived. And so how do we live this Advent story? How do we get this radical story of the birth of Jesus lived in our day, in our time, in a culture like ours where people trample over people to run to get the, the latest and greatest TV or video console or whatever it is? And the church's most prophetic voice is never pushing back on greed or consumerism, but it's like, why don't you say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays? That's not really prophetic, by the way. And so we came up with these four tenets, spend less, give more, love all, and worship fully, and they really as you will see, are connected to the story. Those tenants are meant to move us into the story, to get us to live this story. Spending less comes from the fact that we are resisting the empire of consumption and redistributing those funds to those who need Christ's compassion in the same way that Christ resisted the empires of power and came in his own poverty to make us rich. We give more 
meaning we give of ourselves, we give gifts that are meaningful, because when God decided to give us a gift, he gave us his son to be related to, not stuff. We do all of that so that we can love all because Jesus took on our humanity in order to display God's love by giving us his own tangible riches through his self-sacrifice. So we use the money that we didn't spend on gifts and consumption and overconsumption. We use that to love those who Jesus told us to love in his name which is the least of these. And we do all of that not to pat ourselves on the back, but simply to get ourselves into the story, which is a story about worship. We do all of that so we can worship fully. All of these are practices just to move us into the face of our king and his kingdom and help us get pulled away from these other altars of consumerism over compassion. Now, this is, I promise you, a better story, right? I remember the first year that we rolled this out, and there was so much anxiety, right? Like, oh my gosh, it's not enough that we already did away with the red guy in the red suit, like you, you, you've, you've ruined everything now and now you're taking away presents and, you're, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about we're still giving gifts, we're still buying gifts even, we're just not going into debt, we're just not equating our love for each other with the amount that we spend on each other. We're just not buying into those lies. We'd be, everyone got anxious, like, what about the kids, though? What about the kids? And the truth is, over the last 15 years, the kids have led us. They get this way better than we do. And so today, for those of you that are new or have been on this road for just a little while and aren't sure about it, today... And this, this year, we're, we're doing a reset. We're going to go back over these four tenets to once again remember, like, why is it that we do what we do? What is uh, this story? And how do we really get ourselves into this story? And today I want to talk about this really important one, which is spend less. Uh, and, and I realize that I'm preaching this between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Um, so I might have, it might be way too late, um, according to most of the emails that I've gotten from stores, um, but I got us, at least we're before Monday, right? So, um, and I'm not trying to bum out your Monday, I, but I, maybe I am, I don't know, like we'll see how this goes. So, one of the things that I think is important to realize that when we talk about spending less, we really are talking about uh, something that's important to this story, to this Christmas story, this story of Christ's birth. Because the story of Christ's birth, while we sort of have cleaned it up and made it very um, comfortable, sort of domesticated it, to the American consciousness, it was a political story. And particularly in Matthew's gospel, we find that Matthew deals with the 
the primary political ramifications of Christ's birth more than the other Gospels. For his Gospel, his purpose was to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's promise of a Messiah, uh, that he had the right to the throne of David. He shows through the genealogy that, that Jesus, if there had been a throne in Israel, and it wasn't under Roman occupation, that he would have been the one that had the right to sit on that throne. He quotes the Old Testament more than any other of the Gospels. He has nine additional proofs to make his point about Jesus being the king. And it really comes to bear at the very beginning in Matthew 1.1 when he starts his genealogy. He kind of lays out the point of where he's going. And he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And those three titles kind of wrap up everything about what, what Matthew wants to do. He wants to say Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Spirit-anointed one that has come to be the Savior of Israel. And then when you read the genealogy, he throws in three Gentile women and and he does that on purpose because he wants to say that, oh yeah, he's the savior of Israel and the world. And he is also the son of David, the king, the royal one. And he is son of Abraham, the one who God covenanted to be with all the time, to be his God and his people. And that's a primary point that he is making is that this is a royal pronouncement and this is a royal genealogy that he lays out in Matthew 1.1. And so when we get to Matthew 1.18, we have this vision that Joseph has from the angel. And it says this, it says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law yet didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to the son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so after the genealogy, we get, this, we get this narrative, and here's Joseph, and he's pledged to be married to Mary, who is this teenage, sort of, at this point, an unwed woman from this rural town in this backwoods place called Nazareth. And that is the one who God determined that he would bring his royal pronouncement, that this is the vessel that he would bring his son to earth through. 
But in Joseph's mind, this is just a scandal, and he doesn't want to disgrace Mary, and so he decides, well, he's just going to divorce her and make it real quiet. And the angel comes and pronounces essentially the same genealogical pronouncement that he just gave us in 1-1. He says, Joseph, son of David, because Joseph would have had the throne right, don't be afraid to take Mary home. Give him the name Jesus, which means Savior of the world, or Messiah. And then later on, this is what the prophet said, the virgin will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God's with us. That's similar to the Abrahamic covenant. God with us. These are, this is the world's true king, Matthew is saying. Son of David, son of God, savior and liberator of the world. And we miss the political implications in what God is up to here. We miss it because we are out of this story and out of this context. And so we just look at it and see it as it's, it's purely spiritual. But Mary and Joseph did not miss the political implication. If you read Mary's Magnificat, the song that she sings, you hear how she understands the implications, that God has remembered the oppressed, that God has risen up and come to the rescue of the poor. And nor did those who held power during Jesus' day. During those in power in Jesus' day also understood the political implications involved in what God is up to in the birth of Jesus. And it's really important, not so much that the church come, becomes political per se, but that the rechurch recovers its prophetic voice, particularly around the story of Christmas. We have been consumed by our own consumerism, and we can hardly imagine another story than the one that we have been discipled into by our culture, which tells us that the amount we spend, the, the amount we give, equals love and that is a shameful kind of gospel that is a gospel that puts burden on you that makes you feel guilty for not buying enough spending enough this is why we go into debt every December and hope to pay it off in January Americans last year spent $886.7 billion at Christmas. This year it is estimated that we will spend between $943 and $960 billion on Christmas. It's estimated to solve the world water crisis, just to take one global need, that it's $20 to $30 billion. That's 2 to 3% of what we spend on Christmas. 
We are nearing a trillion dollars a year on Christmas. That's not crazy, right? <laughs> and, and, and so for, for us, the question is, is Advent a time where that's the story we're supposed to tell? Or is it a time where we're supposed to join Jesus in his own subversive coming? Where we refuse to be bought by buying what we can't afford. And we refuse to keep for ourselves what was meant to be given to others. This baby Jesus is a radical revolutionary. Not that sweet baby in the manger scene so tender and mild. Right? This baby keeps kings awake at night filled with anxiety, as we'll see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. When the Magi come from the east, they come first to King Herod, and they come with such boldness to be able to go to the king and said, where's the king? I mean, if you think about that, what courage that took. But King Herod is, is someone who held absolute power, and position, and privilege. And yet, something about this baby that is born in basically a, a, the side of a hill, in complete poverty, and in, in total obscurity, causes this king and his empire to be filled with anxiety over the threat of this poor peasant child from Nazareth. Who was King Herod? I want you to see this slide. King Herod was, in Matthew's Gospel specifically, um, he highlights Herod and gives us this picture of this clash between the child king, and really Herod is a self-proclaimed king uh, of the Jews, Herod the Great. When you read through the Gospels, you'll notice there's three other Herods. Those are Herod's sons. But when Jesus is born, we're dealing with Herod the Great. And Herod was known as a, a brutal tyrant of a leader. 
He killed his own children. He killed his wives when he suspected they threatened his throne. He took the throne through political alliances and marriages. He wasn't born king of the Jews, and so he manipulated his way to take the throne. He he was a powerful military ruler. He had uh, accumulated much wealth. He built a lot of things within uh, the arena in terms of even the temple but was never fully accepted by the Jewish people. And yet there is something about the baby that's born named Jesus that he believes is a true threat to his throne. And as we've seen in Matthew's genealogy that Jesus has the actual throne right and that Herod is a puppet king for Rome. And we see that he is so threatened that, that later on there is the count where Herod basically um, pronounces the genocide of all young males between certain ages up to age like three in the region because he was trying to get rid of the threat to his power. He was willing to kill the baby to kill all the babies. Now, that isn't the Christmas story that most of you grew up with, right? We don't sing songs about that Jesus that comes with such political sort of tension and conflict. And what in the world could this baby that's born to Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, how in the world could that baby threaten this king with his military and his power and his money? And yet, there is something about every empire, despite how much power they have, how much stuff they have, how much money they have, they always live within a mindset of scarcity. Scarcity that creates anxiety, that, that causes them to want more. More security, more power, more money, more stuff. Now in a consumer culture, it looks different. But I can't help when you're getting inundated from ads on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, and I find myself like, wow, I need more headphones. I have so many headphones, it's ridiculous. I love headphones. (laughs) I do, I like high-end headphones, I like noise-canceling headphones, I like earbuds, I like it all. (laughs) But every time I look at it, I'm like, I don't need headphones, right? But I want more, I don't know why. I, I travel and I'll put like one set of headphones in my backpack, And then I'll put a second pair in case that pair breaks. That's weird, right? That's called scarcity. (laughs) And I have abundance, and yet I'm anxious. And that's how every empire works. And yet, in our world, we kind of are our own kings. And we all live with an anxiety that there's not enough, and we need more. 
And this is how advertisers come after us, right? Tapping in to that nightmare of scarcity and anxiety. And so you have these two kings that couldn't be more different, Jesus and Herod. I love this quote by Michael Green because these lights are in the way from me reading it. Um, And I didn't put it in my notes. So go ahead and read that. (laughs) The decorations are beautiful, though, no? Come on, show some love to people. All right. Michael Green says, The note of contrast is strongly emphasized in this short account. There is the contrast between Herod's kingship and that of Jesus. One, inaugurated by Rome, an alien power and based on aggression and cruelty. The other, originating from love, shown in vulnerability, entering to its kingdom through the cross. Herod was 33 at his inauguration and Jesus the same age when he died. What a contrast. Matthew underlines particularly the contrasting responses to Jesus. We have seen how the Magi pursued what they knew to be the utmost of their powers and made an act of obscience. It's basically like uh, deference and obedience and dedication that takes our breath away. Those wise men sought him wholeheartedly, and wise men and women still do. But over and against them stood Herod and the Jewish clergy. Herod's response was hatred and fear. Hatred of anything or anyone that threatened his self-centeredness and fear of a possible rival, however improbable. The lust for power blunted the better qualities in Herod's character. And power still has the corruption tendency today. Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russia, Saddam's Iraq, Milosevic's Serbia show the length to which self-seeking can go against what is known to be right. And we could probably add names to that list. Today, around the world, and in our own country, Jesus' story is a radically different story. The context that Jesus comes in is different. He resisted his empire. He resisted the way in which empires operate. He became king of kings, reigning over all the empires of the world, not through grasping power, but through giving power away. He became poor to make us rich, not by taking but by emptying himself. We have presidents that are elected, and in many ways we have been taught that we are our own kings and we build our own kingdoms. But consumer culture is a deceptive type of empire because on the surface it seems like uh, it's for us. Like it's for us. It's serving us. Who doesn't like more things? Who doesn't like nice things? Who doesn't like magical things? But in the end, 
It is an empire that equates love and happiness and salvation with how much money and stuff we have. And it's never satisfying. Because we don't have a king, it's easy to assume that Christianity is no threat. Jesus is no threat to the president. But if we truly worshiped Jesus in such a way as to taking $960 billion a year spent on Christmas and giving it to the poor, that could do devastating things to the economy. And if you do devastating things to the economy, it wouldn't take long before someone said, kill the baby. Right? So it's the same empire. It just looks different. But what if we took back our story? What if we resisted the empire of scarcity and overconsumption and replaced it with a better story of Jesus' kingdom, of freedom? Meaning, you don't have to go into debt. That that the people that you love, you love because you love them, no matter what you spend on them. That you can give meaningful and wonderful gifts without spending tons of money because after all, the most important thing about your relationships are each other. No one has ever read at a funeral what somebody got for Christmas right? I know that Jim loved me because he gave me a set of golf clubs at Christmas that year, right? Nobody talks like that. What if we took back our story and we spent less? I'm not saying no presents. I'm not saying we don't spend money. Our family spends money still. We still buy gifts. We just don't go nuts, right? And our kids have grown up with this, so they get it, and they, they aren't, like, devastated by it. They appreciate what we do. They, they participate with us in what we do. And our kids at Imago that have, have grown up, when Janet and Humphrey were here for a few weeks back, do you, everybody remember Janet and Humphrey? Yes? Amazing people. Um, when we were in staff meeting talking to them on Tuesday. It was so fun to get to have Rachel and Michelle share with them because it really has been our kids and our families who have led us in this Advent story year after year, embodying this worship in creative and beautiful ways. But it starts by saying, no, we're not going to go crazy with spending. We're going to resist that. We're going to resist that not just because we're like bah humbug. We're resisting that because we're going to tell a better story. We're going to spend less so we can actually give more. So that we can love more people collectively. And so that we can worship more fully. And have the freedom and the space to do that at Advent. The first year we did Advent Conspiracy was 2007. There were about four churches that did it. 
And we didn't know what we were doing. We came up with these things and we we're like, yeah, let's see what happens. And we just thought it would be like maybe a one-off crazy idea. And that year, between the four of us, we brought in half a million dollars between four churches. And we began to work with Living Water in one region of Liberia called Mount Barclay. And over the next few years, we were able to put in uh, not just water projects, but schools and churches and businesses in this entire region, right, saturating it with our partners on the ground over there. And we began to see, like, this is such a better story. In June, when you see stories of people drinking clean water and lives and communities being changed, and you don't remember what you got at Christmas, right, think about that. Like almost a trillion dollars of stuff we forget about in six months. This is a better story. And in the second year, we began to invite other people to join us, and we created a a, a cheap website for 200 bucks, and Jeannie kind of helped work with it, and a bunch of churches jumped on, like more than we imagined, 1,700 churches in 35 countries. And over the last 15 years, it's continued to grow and grow and grow, and it's it's just been a crazy thing. And and when we people ask us why did it work, my answer is really simple. It just it's always been the church's story. We just didn't know how to take it back. But this it's really the most simplest thing in the world. It's just an idea: spend less, give more, worshipfully love all. And yet, over the last few years, for us, it's just become Advent. And as it's just become Advent, I think for some of us, we've drifted. Um, Some of us, like Herod, have gotten anxious that our kids maybe don't get enough, and we don't want our kids to be upset, or we just... Yeah, you know, we'll give to clean water and we'll give stuff, but we, we, keep, we, want to keep, we want to keep having big Christmas. And if someone was able to actually see our bank accounts, if they were open before someone, what story would they tell about our worship? Because the thing that I don't want us to miss is that the top purpose of what we're doing is worship, not water. It's worship, not an offering. It's worship, not spending less. And if we miss that, all these other pieces get distorted. Giving over the last few years at Imago, our AC giving, um, has been the same amount by which we have missed our general budget giving which I'm super grateful for both. But what it, what it tells us is that we're probably robbing Peter to pay Paul. Not necessarily spending less to give more, but just transferring this giving to this giving. And this year we're doing a reset because we're not interested in just drifting off of the worship 
Because that's the whole point. Amen? We're doing a reset to once again enter our story because we believe it's a better story, a life-giving story that we would still give to the church, but this would come from what we don't spend at Christmas. And it would go to those who need it locally and around the world. This Advent is the Advent where God's true king was given to us, the king who changes the world. And that starts with resisting not herald, but unbridled want and unbridled consumerism. Spending less to give more means learning to give relational gifts that create memories and moments that matter more than stuff so that we have space to worship Jesus, so that we have space to love those he loves. And it takes, when you feel that resistance in you to do this, that's because it takes faith to do this. Right? We're talking about living like radical disciples for the next four weeks. Imagine it. <laughs> I know we're supposed to do it all the time, but let's just try to do it for four weeks and see what happens. It takes faith to do this. Do we really believe that Jesus' way is the better way? And I believe we do. And I believe it because we've done it for year after year and we've seen it. As the worship team comes, I want us to prepare our hearts for this table today. It's amazing to me that this baby who was born in poverty has been setting a table for 2,000 years for people all over the world to dine at. Because that baby that was born was born to ultimately die and rise and reign forever. This king who lived in poverty was crucified to make us rich with his riches in his grace. This king who was crucified under the powers of Rome and Herod ultimately now reigns over all the kingdoms of the world and will one day come again as we wait for him to take his rightful place. And so communion is this meal that Jesus sets before us to remember the cost of his kingdom, but also the gift of his grace. And as you feel led today, I would invite you to come to this table and to remember that that baby, that revolutionary baby king was born so that you could be free to live in the way of his kingdom in the midst of the empire that you find yourself in today. There'll be people at the doors to pray with you and pray for you. But today we join and we begin an adventure and it's a worship adventure living into the story of the birth of our Lord and our King. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, this morning we come to you 
thanking you for the gift of our King Jesus Christ. And God, we want to do more than just sing about the story and tell the story and talk about the story. We want to live the story. And so we ask for faith for that, God. We want this month to be a month where we are so filled with worship for you, where we experience the contrast between your kingdom and the kingdoms of the world, where we feel such thankfulness and gratefulness for your merciful power and your sacrificial love, that we can't help but get in on the story that we want to tell it, we want to live it, we want to experience it, young and old, families and friends. And so Jesus, would you come by your spirit, would you take your rightful place as our king, that we might worship you like the shepherds, like the angels, like Simeon and Anna, For you are our God and our King. You are our Emmanuel, Son of David, Son of God. We give you praise. Amen.